Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. There is no more quintessential frontier than the Pays d'Honneur of New France in the 17th and 18th centuries. Unlike British colonists who quickly developed farmsteads and populous towns along the eastern seaboard, French Canadians lived frontier lifestyles in great numbers and for successive generations in the much less tamed French Acadia, which surrounds the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the Laurentian Valley on either side of the St. Lawrence River, and the Pays d'Honneur, which is the wilderness surrounding the Great Lakes. One French traveler in the 1750s marveled at the adaptability of French male colonists. Quote, They alone can go in canoes in summer, on snowshoes in winter, subsist on bits of flour, lard, and suet, make forced marches through the woods for three to six months at a time, withstanding the rigors of winter, living from the mouth of their musket, that is to say by hunting and fishing alone. But he was wrong about one thing. French-Canadian men were not alone. They negotiated alliances with indigenous tribes who guided them on ancient footpaths through the thick Canadian wilderness. They often had wives, in addition to indigenous women companions and their kin. The First Nations, particularly the Huron-Wendat, which is uh, an episode plug. We have another um, whole episode on them. Uh, also, the Algonquin and Innu were crucial to French colonists' initial survival and continued success in the colony. Over the course of the 1600s, these tribes taught French colonists to process animal skins. They also built vast trade networks across the St. Lawrence River, over the Great Lakes, and up into French Acadia and back across the Atlantic Ocean to the Bordeaux region of France. In the 1700s, these trade networks expanded around the Great Lakes, through the Mississippi River Valley, and down to French Louisiana. In return for their instruction and guidance, the French gave the indigenous allies European commercial goods, which they used ceremoniously and as social capital within tribal alliances. The French Empire's most valuable asset was, by far, the trade in furs. Beaver, moose, deer, bear, and wolf, as well as marine pelts such as seal captured off the cold northern Labrador coast. It was the increasing scarcity of beaver that compelled French troops and their Algonquin allies to fight for decades against the Iroquois and Dutch in a series of intermittent conflicts that came to be known as the Beaver Wars. Still, the pull of the Canadian frontier went far beyond desire for riches. An early historian of the frontier wrote, Quote, the attraction of the fur trade for so many inhabitants is not easily explained. Perhaps the complete independence which a man found in the forest, not to mention the charms of willing Indian girls, was compensation enough for many discomforts. Canadians were men of broad horizons. Were a wife to nag too constantly, some of them at least could hire out as voyagers for the West." Just gross that a historian was writing that. Like quote. And quote. So as frontiers typically are, the story of the French Canadian wilderness has been a gendered one since its earliest iterations. 
If it ever existed in reality, this straightforward masculine escape was complicated by complex alliances with matrilineal aboriginals and state-sponsored waves of immigration that brought radical women, authoritarian clergy, cloistered nuns, swashbuckling soldiers, skilled artisans, and eventually French nobility into the fold of frontier life. This week, we'll attempt to uncover the lived experiences of men and women on the French-Canadian frontier and think about how the trade in furs shaped their lives in interesting and very gendered ways. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We are so thankful for all the individuals and businesses who've supported this podcast. And today we want to give a special shout out to the farmers who own Cabot Creamery Cooperative. Some of you may know that I have been side hustling for the Cabot Marketing Department for over a decade. And so these folks are really near and dear to my heart. But all of us at Dig only buy Cabot cheese because we know that it's going to be delicious, but also because we know we're supporting a really wonderful business model, uh, this cooperative model, with 100% of profits going back to the farmers. And as of 2019, the Cabot Co-op will have been around for 100 years. To make it through another 100, they will continue to invest in sustainability. Cabot makes the world's best cheddar. That's a given. But it was also the first dairy to earn a B Corp certification. Our farmers are committed to good land stewardship, and they're committed to all the communities and the people where they work and farm. Every Cabot dairy product that you purchase ensures the future and the next 100 years of every farm family from New York and New England who make up our co-op. You can go to the Cabot website, cabotcheese.coop to sign up for e-cheese to get recipes and coupons to learn about our gratitude department or to get more information about visiting one of our retail stores where you can sample every flavor of cheese for free that's cabotcheese.coop thank you cabot farmers for supporting dig history podcast the canadian part of new france was incredibly slow to start Huguenots, or as we say in English, Huguenots, uh, who were French Protestants, and French Catholics first attempted to start settlements in Canada in the 1500s. Their journeys and initial setup were subsidized by the French crown, but they were expected to be self-sufficient after this initial expense. The Huguenots were looking for a refuge from Catholic hostility, and Catholic authorities were looking to evangelize in the New World. None of these initial settlements survived. All colonization initiatives were halted during the French Wars of Religion, which were from 1562 to 1598. For those of you who need to brush up on your early modern European history, this was a civil war between Huguenots and Catholics, which plunged the French kingdom into chaos and resulted in the deaths of four million people. The Wars of Religion subsided with the accession of Henri Quatre, which is Henry IV, um, to the French throne. Henri IV was baptized a Catholic, but raised as a Protestant. He controversially issued the Edict of Nantes in 1598, which guaranteed religious liberty to Huguenots. 
Henri IV oversaw a reinvigorated effort to settle the Canadian wilderness. Instead of financing the efforts directly, Henri IV granted land and monopoly rights to proprietors who, in turn, financed colonization efforts out of the proceeds. Using this model, the French established the colony of Port Royal in 1604 and Quebec in 1608. Port Royal eventually failed and devolved into a trading post with a population of about 20 men. Quebec succeeded and obviously still exists today, but it grew very slowly. Henri IV was assassinated in 1610 by a radical Catholic, and he was succeeded by Louis XIII, who initially maintained the status quo. By 1627, Quebec, what we know today in the English-speaking world as Quebec, um, had only 84 inhabitants. The crown set very low emigration quotas, and in the absence of consequences for not meeting them, proprietors slacked at recruiting colonists. Louis XIII's chief minister, Cardinal Richelieu, revoked Quebec's charter in 1627 and restructured the country's colonization efforts. He created the Company of 100 Associates and granted it a permanent monopoly on the fur trade and 15-year monopolies on all other trades except fisheries. In return, the company would transport 4,000 indentured servants to New France. Colonists were required to be Catholic and French by birth. This put a real damper on settlement initiatives. British colonists were largely religious dissidents or other marginal peoples who left Britain out of discontent. French religious dissidents, the people who perhaps had the most to gain from immigration, were prohibited from settling permanently in New France. Recruitment was obstructed even further by jurisdictional disputes among the men of the Company of 100 Associates, who had begun subcontracting out portions of their monopolies across New France. Recruitment remained a low priority. In 1645, the company conceded their monopoly to a conglomerate called the Community of the Inhabitants, which comprised all males who resided permanently in French Canada. Under this arrangement, colonists themselves would receive income from the monopolies and, in turn, recruit more colonists. They did no better than the company had done before them. They made very little income and failed to meet their recruitment quotas. They just did not have the infrastructures and financial support that they needed to enforce their monopolies and solicit newcomers. They experimented with several different strategies to keep the colonial enterprise afloat, which included renting out trading posts, but all to no avail. Making matters even more dire, the British were constantly interfering, occupying several French-Canadian towns at any given time during the second half of the 17th century. King Louis XIV and his advisor, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, brought the failing enterprise underneath the direct jurisdiction of the French crown in the 1660s. In front of the Parlement in Paris, Colbert berated the failed company, arguing that it neglected its promise to recruit inhabitants and generate revenue for the crown. In 1663, there were only 3,500 colonists in all of New France, so this includes all of Canada, the Mississippi Valley, Louisiana, and the Caribbean. While nearly 90,000 British colonists had settled in the 13 colonies alone, Okay, that's not even considering the British colonies uh, in the Caribbean, for example. Louis XIV decided to subsidize colonial recruitment efforts, financing the transportation of 4,000 settlers in the following decade. Half of these were male indentured servants, and a quarter were soldiers. 
other state-sponsored immigrants to French Canada included prisoners, military personnel, church personnel, and marriageable women. Still, the settlements in New France remained small, sparse, and slow-growing. This was, in part, due to skewed sex ratios, fewer families, and therefore fewer offspring and natural increase. The British colonies relied on farming, so entire families settled in New England and the Chesapeake to build and work farmsteads. These families grew, intermarried, and birthed new generations of Anglo-Americans. New France's major source of income was fur trapping, which attracted bachelors rather than families. French soldiers regarded their time in French Canada as temporary, like any other military assignment, and so they seldom invested in families. Catholic missionaries, another important demographic, also tended to be men, particularly men who were not procreating. Of the 790 clergy who resided in New France, only 58 of them were women. Keep in mind, none of these women were procreating either because they were all women who had taken orders in the Catholic Church. They were brides of Christ. So for most of the 1600s, there were very few women in French Canada who were having children. King Louis XIV attempted to remedy the dearth of marriageable women by sending flotillas of eligible young ladies called the Filles du Roi, or King's Daughters, to New France. These women agreed to emigrate to French Canada on the condition that the state would pay their dowries. They were allowed to choose their own husbands, which was more than could be said for aristocratic French women in the metropole. They entered through the Gulf of St. Lawrence and traveled down the St. Lawrence River, stopping at villages and outposts, mingling with the single French men, and then deciding whether they wanted to settle down with someone there or move down the river to the next settlement. And this process kind of reminds me of those orphan trains in the U.S. um, in the late 19th century and early 20th century where there would be trains and you'd fill them with orphans from the East Coast and they would just kind of go out West and they would stop People would and, pick up kids on Yeah, you would pick yeah. up a kid. Although the kids didn't have any choice. No, matter, the so kids this is a little different. Right, the kids didn't choose. Yeah. But, you know, if if you weren't chosen at one stop, you'd go to the next one. Yeah. More than 900 filles de bois were sent to French Canada between 1663 and 1673. Two-thirds of French Canadians today are confirmed descendants of the filles de bois. Huh, that's interesting. And there's probably, it's probably even more than that. That's just how many we know of. Mm-hmm. Though there were fewer of them, married French-Canadian women were remarkably fecund. The French crown encouraged higher birth rates within the Dominion by offering an annual pension of 300 livres to any family who birthed more than 10 children. Uh, Though they were all eligible for the same reward, French-Canadian women were considerably more likely to achieve this target than were other French women. Historians initially attributed high birth rates in French Canada to Catholic pronatalism and to much earlier marriages. It is true that 47% of women in French Canada married as teenagers, compared to 33% of women in rural France. If women get married younger, they are more likely to have more children because they are presumably having sexual intercourse for a larger portion of their childbearing years. But even if we take younger marriage age into account, French-Canadian women were having more children than rural women in France who married at about the same age. So here are the stats. Women in French Canada who married as teenagers could be expected to bear an average of 12 children compared to an average of eight children among women who married as teenagers in rural France. Even French-Canadian women who married in their late 20s averaged seven children, while their rural French counterparts averaged five children. 
French Canadian women had more babies, more often, and for longer than rural French women. Historical demographers have since discovered that French Canadian women conceived more readily and entered menopause later than women in rural France because they consumed more nutrient-dense food in higher quantities than women in France, where famine and malnutrition were widespread. Though the story of the Fille du Bois sounds like some bizarre medieval marriage deal, these women's lives in French Canada were often better than those they could have expected in France. Many of them came from impoverished, aristocratic families who were unable to provide them with dowries. Others were impoverished or orphaned. Half of them were recruited from the Hôpital Général in Paris. Um, and the Hôpital Général was not a hospital, even though that's kind of what it looks like. Um, rather, it was a poorhouse built by a French Catholic secret society called the Company of the Blessed Sacrament. The female annex within the poorhouse was called Salpetriere, and this institution housed as many as 3,000 women and girls who suffered from abandonment, poverty, illness, um, quote-unquote, insanity, and other disabilities that made them burdens on Parisian society. There were, however, moral guidelines for admission. So prostitutes, or what we would call sex workers today, um, and, quote, loose women uh, were refused admission. And don't worry, they built this horrific prison called La Force um, in 1681. For, specifically for them. Specifically yes. for them. Because we have to do something with the loose women. Yeah, put them somewhere. Um, so Salpetriere was used by wealthy families with several daughters who were clamoring to send their excess daughters there instead of to convents. Um, wealthy families in Catholic Europe typically paid dowries for their eldest daughters to marry, sometimes a second daughter as well, but they often declined to do so for subsequent daughters. These daughters were sent to convents to become nuns. The only other alternative was for their parents to support them as spinsters for the rest of their lives, or for these women to marry working-class men um, who wouldn't expect a dowry Heaven forbid, that would be the worst. Um, so as this practice became more common, convents began to demand dowries from a woman's parents in exchange for taking her into their order. Always looking to save a dime, aristocratic and middling families sought an alternative for their extra daughters. Enter Salpetriere. These daughters of wealthy Parisians were referred to by the poorhouse administration as bijoux or jewels mm. because they were more refined and desirable than the other inmates. Salpetriere provided Fidois for six waves of emigration to French Canada in the 1660s and 1670s. The French West India Company also sent Fidois to Martinique in the Caribbean in the 1680s. So, um, you know, half of the fee de roi are coming from Salpetriere. Yeah. Half of the people in Salpetriere are, uh, are poor, poor, and half of them are jewels. <laughs> right. Um, so when, you, uh, when you're talking about these waves of immigration, so like how many women would go at a time? Several dozen. Okay. Uh, maybe three dozen or so. And um, we don't know that much about them, but there are a couple cases where we find out the exact names of people and how many were on a specific... Uh, ship like ship manifest kind yeah of thing. there was uh -huh. one that they like kind of mutinied because they were mad yes. at something that their their uh they had like a companion who was who had to kind of watch over them and mm -hmm. they got mad and um complained about this person and eventually kind of brought charges and made it into a whole big thing so that's why we know uh, you know about people them. Um, right. yeah but otherwise we don't really have the ship manifests or anything um 
and all of the uh, records from Salpetriere and the Hôpital Général are gone because they uh, were destroyed in the French Revolution. So, oh. all right. So still the dearth of marriageable French women in Canada continued to be a problem. Frenchmen turned instead to indigenous women as they searched for companionship, marriage, and families. Indigenous women are these exotic figures in histories of British North America, and this is because British settlers tended to group together near the coastline and they generally maintained a strict separation between themselves and indigenous societies. But in New France, indigenous women often shared their lives with French Canadian men. Aboriginal tribes suffered from low male populations due to frequent warfare. So native women were often willing to marry French fur trappers instead of marrying within their tribe. Some native women encouraged their daughters to marry French traders to improve trade relationships and to give them access to European luxuries that otherwise they could not afford. First Nations women were the first to learn French and to teach fur traders native languages, acting as mediators between indigenous uh, statesmen and the French colonial enterprise. Intermarriage between French Canadian fur traders and indigenous women initially favored the French cause because it nurtured kinship bonds that extended French trading influence deep into the frontier. French Catholic missionaries were also more successful in recruiting converts among the First Nations because they welcomed the persistence of indigenous culture after conversion. The same could be said for French indigenous marriages. Frenchmen rarely required their indigenous wives to convert or disown their families. During the 1600s, fur traders often had two wives, one indigenous wife in the Pays de Note, with a marriage contracted on mutual agreement, and another French-born wife in the St. Lawrence settlement, whose vows were solemnized in a Catholic ceremony. Well, that seems a little sketchy. Yeah, don't you? But, they, yeah. but you technically would avoid so bigamy got- because... You, you have, have your one, frontier wife, and yeah. then you have your quote-unquote real wife. Right, but That's also the indigenous wives didn't give a crap about well, their marriage being solemnized in the Catholic Church because it meant nothing to them. So yeah. it's kind of like they're benefiting from um, letting their indigenous wives continue to have, you know, their same culture. You know what I mean? And, like he, kind of, and he also gets a wife when he's in town and yeah. a wife when he's out. Yeah. Must be nice. Yeah. The Haudenosaunee settled in small villages surrounding Montreal, the most well-known being Caughnawaga, um, and this was called Salt-Saint-Louis by by the French. Several indigenous smuggling operations have been traced to women operating out of Caughnawaga. The Mohawk and Seneca especially smuggled French-trapped furs out of the St. Lawrence River Valley to the British at Albany or the Dutch in New Amsterdam. The British and Dutch paid high prices for beaver pelts. Historians have recently uncovered how Canadian indigenous people contributed to British smuggling operations from the 1690s to the 1750s. It's suspected that Albany trader Everett Wendell and his siblings employed hundreds of native traders in a massive rum smuggling operation that started in the 1690s and continued until the 1720s. The Wendell's financial records show that they traded suspicious amounts of rum exclusively to Canadian indigenous traders on credit, and that many of the traders never settled their accounts. So the furs that they received in exchange for their rum were so valuable that they were able to figure these defaults into their pricing. So a little bookkeeping chicanery yeah, there. Exactly, yeah. like messing around with the books. Yeah. Um, they didn't actually say they had a smuggling operation. This was discovered by historians who are like, wait a minute, yeah. um, this is not this right. This does not check out. Right. <laughs> Um, So almost half of the indigenous smugglers were women. 
The Wendell trading records are hauntingly detailed in their descriptions of Indigenous Canadian women traders. In 1698, Albany trader Everett Wendell recorded his transactions with a, quote, limping female savage from Canada who traded several animal skins for a kettle, shirts, and rum. Two years later, she returned with eight beaver pelts, which she exchanged, quote, for a French canoe with which she went to Canada, end quote. The Wendells also recorded their transactions with, quote, a pockmarked female mohawk from Canada arrived to trade just after Christmas in 1705, bearing, quote, greetings from the priest. She purchased on credit red duffel stockings and nine bars of lead. She returned three months later to pawn an axe. That May, she returned with beaver pelts to settle her account. The Wendells traded with her for several years after, and they even have records of her introducing them to an Oneida woman who um, would... networks. Yeah, and it's just, it's crazy that they can reconstruct these networks because Mm -hmm. this was, I mean, this was the 17th century, and there's just so few records that survive, and not to mention... Um, indigenous peoples were mostly had oral cultures they weren't writing anything down so it's crazy that we can kind of find out things about their lives lives. yeah Yeah. that's cool so smuggling operations became increasingly elaborate but indigenous women were still crucial to the operations albany merchant robert sanders employed six indigenous smugglers in the 1750s two of them named agnes and marie magdalene were both women Both women traveled by footpath through Montreal and Albany, smuggling furs past French fortresses. Between May and July of 1753, Agnes made three round trips. With the French in high alert, the indigenous smugglers became skilled at diverting their attention as their colleagues snuck contraband through the jurisdiction. Right. So we have some records because we from French fortresses where they would keep, you know, logs or whatever, Mm -hmm. where they would say, oh, um, you know, a, a native came and was talking to us about blah, blah, blah this day. And then they have these records from Albany that show furs were being smuggled <laughs> smuggled in and rum being smuggled out of Albany. Right. Um, and so they have been able to cross-reference these and say, oh, my gosh, they were creating a diversion. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Back to the story. Uh, by the mid-1700s, Catholic French-Canadian men were marrying indigenous women in large numbers and establishing Creole fur trading towns. Their children began to be referred to as Métis, which translates roughly um, as crossbreed. According to the marriage registers of St. Anne, which is a, a church in Michilimackinac, which is um, it's a town that grew out of a French fortress in what is now northern Michigan, um, 65% of French-Canadian men in that parish married Indigenous or Métis women. So, I mean, this is extremely common. Um, as Creole settlements grew, they developed their own language called Michif, which is a cross between Cree, which is an Algonquian language, and French. Hmm. Many fur trappers and merchants living in Canada were married to European women, but they often spent months apart from their spouses. French-Canadian women tended homes and farms on the edges of the frontier or small houses in the larger towns, selling their handicrafts and produce at market, while their husbands explored the vast Canadian wilderness with indigenous guides hunting for food and skins. But in French Canada, women had more property rights than their Anglo counterparts in the 13 colonies. Some French-Canadian women, such as Louise de Ramazé, were themselves formidable traders. Ramazé was the daughter of a wealthy Montreal governor, but she spent her life organizing and supervising her own milling, tanning, and lumber export operations. 
Agatha de Saint-Pierre was married to a French-Canadian military hero, but made no mention of him in her correspondence with French ministers. So this was a common strategy among Anglo women. So when Anglo women would write to the English crown uh, from the colonies, they would kind of say, hey, I know you don't know me because I'm a colonist, but um, Mm -hmm. they would use their husband's military honors to get their letters in front of the king's ministers. They would say, I'm the wife of this, you know, glorious military man. And the idea was that the king's minister would, would be familiar with yeah. their accomplishments. Um, so when French Canadian women wrote to the crown petitioning them for something or another, mm-hmm. um, they didn't ever mention their husbands at all, even though they had them. Mm-hmm. So Agatha de Saint-Pierre um, instead chose to highlight her entrepreneurial talents, which she demonstrated by establishing a successful textile manufacturing. So this is part of her letter that she sent to um, the French the French crown. Mm-hmm. Quote, I would never finish, Monseigneur, were I to indulge myself in revealing all the knowledge I have of the advantages to be found in Canada. Only my courage has prevented me from ceding to difficulties and expenses that I had to make in these beginnings. The country would receive endless fruits from the use of these resources, which until now have been enveloped in obscurity from which I have raised them. My imagination, monsieur, has procured me the honor to enter into a little part of your intentions. Like, is she for real right now? She's very like, uh, I am amazing. Yeah. And I have... That's, it's, that's quite actually... It's quite amazing to hear yeah. a woman during this period right. talking about herself that yes. way. And yeah. her husband was a military hero. Wow. So she could have said, hey, I'm the wife of this person you've heard of. Yeah. She didn't. She was just like, nice. I am amazing. So there is something about... Um, the French-Canadian wilderness that empowered women in a certain um, way, mm-hmm. which you don't hear about much because when you hear about the frontier, you're thinking about, like, it's all manly pursuits. Bearded you know? dudes. Right. Yeah. So historians of defamation and slander cases in French Canada have also uncovered that French Canadian women enjoyed freedom of speech that was unheard of in Anglo-America. Basically just what we've been talking about, right? Uh, They made their ideas about politics, morality, and religion known in public forums. Mobs of ordinary French Canadian women descended on bailiffs and governors demanding churches in their neighborhoods or criticizing their choice to allow the sale of horse meat at market. Aristocratic women could also be influential. Outside observers often commented on the uncanny ability of French-Canadian high society women to manipulate political appointments through gossip and flattery alone. The most notorious of these high society women was Madame de Vaudreuil. She was the wife of New France's Governor General Philippe de Rougat de Vaudreuil and traveled to Versailles in 1709 to influence the French court. Regarded as, quote, witty but dangerous. Oh, I like that. That's going to be my title. <laughs> she quickly became an important socialite and befriended the minister of marine, Jérôme de Pontchartrain, who directed all colonial affairs. The attorney general of Quebec said of Madame Vaudreuil, quote, she controls all the positions in Canada. She writes magnificent letters from all sorts of places to the seaports about the power she can exert over Minister Pontchartrain. She offers her protection. She threatens to use her influence. She causes great fear and imposes silence on most of those who could speak against her husband. Right. So she was badass. 
This is not to say that French Canadian women had dismantled the patriarchy. Far from it. Um, the frequency of spousal separation made wives vulnerable to charges of adultery, even though it was more often the husbands who were breaking their vows. In the 1670s and 1680s, indigenous men frequented the town of Montreal to trade, and rumor spread that these indigenous traders were copulating with French women colonists. So this is the thing where, you know, all of the French men are like, oh my gosh, these foreign men are coming in here and copulating with our women. In fact, the anxiety over miscegenation between white women and indigenous men was so compelling that municipal authorities fast-tracked the construction of Montreal's Jericho prison for, quote, women and girls of ill repute in 1686. So they were like, we need to lock these bees up. Um, The modest towns of Montreal and Quebec unlike the trading posts, fortresses, and Canadian wilderness, were subject to the heavy-handedness of enthusiastic clergy and moralizing magistrates. A French soldier named La Hontan served in Canada during the 1680s and 1690s and wrote the following dour description of Montreal in a letter home. So when I think of Montreal, I think of like, I don't know, very European and, and cultural and whatever. So this is what he says Montreal was like in the 1680s. Quote, at least in Europe, you have the amusement of Carnival, but here it is perpetual Lent. (laughs) We have a bigot of a pastor whose inquisition is entirely misanthropic. One must not think under his spiritual despotism, either of games or of seeing the ladies or of any party of honest pleasure. Everything is scandal and mortal sin to this surly creature. The French are so great. I don't know. This is the the most French thing anyone's ever (laughs) written. In the 17th century especially, the church maintained tight-fisted control over colonial society. And not all of the clergy's ire was aimed at women. They harbored deep resentment towards the merchants and traders who, they said, behaved like hooligans during their visits to the city. Upon their return from trapping expeditions, fur traders were known to, quote, plunge up to the neck into voluptuousness. Good living, women, gaming, drink, everything goes. I'm sorry, but I love that plunge up to the neck yes. in voluptuousness. It's very incredibly sexual. I can't even handle it. <laughs> there was a fair amount of kinky happenings going on in, this, in 17th century Montreal, more than one might think considering the resolutely Catholic conservatism of the town. Before 1700, there were 150 sex crime trials in New France involving 400 men and women. That is, seduction, rape, public debauchery, prostitution, solicitation, adultery, bigamy, concubinage, and sodomy. That's quite a list there. Mm -hmm. These are huge numbers when you consider how small the population was, right? So in 1630, there were 103 colonists in all of New France. In 1640, there were 355. By 1700, the population of all of New France was the same as that of the city of Boston alone. Right. And they, I think in our um, Puritans episode, we talked about these sex crime cases and there were similar numbers of them, Uh which is ridiculous because their population was like 20 times what the population was here. So if you think about it. So they're both doing more of the sex but they're also punishing more of the sex. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's very, or maybe they're not doing more of the sex. They're just punishing it. Yeah. Maybe they're just punishing it stronger or um, the clergy has more influence there than they might in France. 
it's very polarized. There's, you know, there's these hooligans who came here for, you know, free love and to have two wives or whatever. And then, (laughs) and then there's the clergy who are there to proselytize and they're like, oh my gosh, like these, you know, devils, right. The fur trade acted as a release valve for men who were frustrated with the unrelenting missionary devotion in Canadian missionary towns. La Ontan, for example, spent the cold months of 1685 traveling with the Algonquin and reading for pleasure. So, you know, he complained about Montreal, but he also didn't have to be there. Right. Um, For French-Canadian wives, however, such opportunities were rare. Though they enjoyed more freedom of speech and more robust property rights, French-Canadian women's sexuality was regulated by an invasive state and a vehement clergy. In 1682, a woman named Anne Lamarck became the subject of scrutiny by Montreal's powerful priests. Lamarck was known for her religious laxity, uh, and she was the proprietor of a successful inn called Cabaret de la Folleville, which is awesome because it means Cabaret of the Crazy Woman Town. Yes. And I'm like, that's my new cabaret. I know. Um, The priests call her business to the attention of the town's criminal authorities, accusing her of anti clericalism, sorcery, and of performing abortions. In the end, she was charged with adultery, promiscuity, and running a brothel. Um, But at trial, her accusers tried unsuccessfully to convince the court that she was a witch. Lamarck benefited from the jurisdictional squabbles that pitted clerical authorities against secular governments in the colonies. You know, she she wasn't uh, found guilty of witchcraft because they just they didn't have all their ducks in a row. They were kind of arguing over who who had, had the authority, authority. to yeah. to, to yeah. argue this. Um, but her case illustrates that failing to conform to French conceptions of womanhood put some French Canadian women at risk. So, you know. The environment allowed for women like this to exist, a woman right. to own a successful business and to, you know, uh, not go to church or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still sort of dangerous. Sure. Occasionally one would get get pulled in by the popos. Right. Right. So 17th century French Canada experienced the same witchcraft hysteria that resulted in the hangings of over 20 women in New England in the same period, but on a much smaller scale. France had its own witchcraft panic from 1677 to 1682 called the Affair of the Poisons. Almost 200 people were arrested, 36 were executed, and dozens more committed suicide or died from harsh conditions in prison. French Canada had only a handful of true witchcraft cases, yet historians have uncovered considerable evidence of their preoccupation with the devil and maleficium. They were particularly worried that sorcery would interfere with conjugal relations. Mm. And when you think about their their population problem, that makes sense. They're, like, worried that Mm, witches are preventing them from populating the countryside. Um, In 1657, Montreal resident René Bernard was prosecuted for causing impotence in Pierre Gaudois. Bernard had purportedly made advances toward Gaudois' wife before their marriage. His supposed impotence curse was believed to be an act of revenge against Gaudois. Bernard was found guilty and sentenced to banishment, and the Gaudois marriage annulled, quote, for cause of perpetual impotence. Gaudois and his former wife both married again and had children. They so sincerely believed that uh, Bernard had cursed their marriage that they were physically unable to consummate their marriage. It's kind of the power of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. 
this anxiety about sorcery preventing sex between married couples was so powerful that in 1703, the Bishop of Quebec requested that all clergy in Canada pray for, quote, married persons prevented by malficium or spell to make use of marriage, end quote. 17th, 17th century problems yeah <laughs> like really that's like the thing you're most concerned about like let's everybody pray for people for married couples who are being prevented from having sex because of witchcraft like i mean i don't know it's a different world right it, it is different and it's world. also a, a faith and i mean a faith yeah. so strong in something i mean that, and that's that, that's that the point reality. you have to take it seriously even though yes. they had fewer witchcraft trials and there wasn't the same um, violence, you know, done to women during this. You know, there were fewer trials, fewer uh, convictions, fewer executions. This was something that was very real to them. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of important to keep in yeah, mind. Yeah, you have to keep that in mind. So more than anything, French-Canadian perceptions of good and evil were shaped by their frontier environment. They often saw in the vast wilderness around them the workings of Lucifer. After an earthquake hit Quebec in 1663, Sister Marie de l'Incarnation, um, she's considered one of the founding mothers of um, French Canada mm-hmm. um, because she founded the Ursuline Order uh, in Montreal. So she attributed this quake to demonic intervention. So she wrote this, this letter um, back home. Mm-hmm. Quote, shortly before the quake, I saw four demons, furious and enraged at the four corners of Quebec, who were shaking the earth with such violence that they said they would overturn everything. Terrifying specters were seen, and as demons sometimes mingle in thunder, it was easily believed that they had mingled in this earthquake to heighten the terror that nature causes, end quote. So this idea... It's really fascinating to me because the frontier could be something different to so many different people, like at the same at the same time. Mm-hmm. So to Marie uh, de l'Incarnation, it was this vast, powerful space where the devil could make his presence known. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to the French, it was this vast expanse filled with valuable raw materials like lumber and animal skins. Right. To restless fur traders, it was an escape from supposedly the nagging wife. <laughs> and to the First Nations, it was home. And it was a home that they were now compelled to share with the French, the Dutch, and the British. Um, and to French-Canadian wives, it was a place where they could speak freely and rise to the challenge of building families and businesses with their hard work. Um, and it's just so interesting to me because I think – in histories of frontiers, and especially with fur trading, mm-hmm. the emphasis is on this uh, masculine sort of activity and, you know, how these European men are just conquering. the Conquering the, the wild wilderness that's yeah. an un- uninhabited kind right. of empty space. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of romanticized. Right. Like, oh my gosh, they're walking around in their beaver caps or whatever and, um, you know living off the land mm-hmm. um and that's true but the canadian frontier even though it was uh perhaps that for some people it was a lot of of other things for other people and i think one of the important things um is that the metis so those are the the offspring of the french men who married indigenous women which which you might have heard as metis metis okay yeah. that's what they okay in french it's it's M-E-T-I-S. Yes. F-Y-I. Or, I mean, it's the same thing as, um, what what is it in Spanish America? Mestizo. Mestizo. Yeah. It's the, it's the same word in French. Mm-hmm. Um, they had 
a hard time. In some ways, it's surprising because the British, you know, every time you see an indigenous person, it's like, grab your guns or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And French Canada wasn't like that. They were purposely making alliances together and... Um, they even yes, fought it was very the British. Much more inter interconnected. Yeah, interconnected in, in this sort of like respect that like, hey, we're both two different nations and we're right. we're making alliances in this very sort of old fashioned uh, way. Um, through these kinship networks, right? Through kinship mm-hmm. networks, which is very Native American, but then they're also you know marrying to make these networks. That was very common in France as well. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, but but, but they're these you know mixed children. Um, it wasn't easy. They were there was a lot of prejudice. Um, that is why they created their own language because they ended up settling all together. So just because these people are interacting doesn't mean that that they are you know valuing each other as that people. That it's a utopian or, society. Yeah, or no, like not that. Yeah. not anything. Well, and I think we see a glimpse of that in the fact that women's uh, white women's French women's sexuality is still highly right protected. Right, and right. so if a a uh, French woman were to marry or have intercourse with a native man, mm-hmm. then she is police. Right. And that's what's so interesting. We were talking with our friend Chong of a couple weeks ago because yeah. she works on 1930s uh, rural China mm-hmm. and women would have several husbands because yeah. there were, um, you know, lots of men and not that many women. Mm-hmm. And she asked us if we knew an example of that in the Western world and we just don't. (laughs) And you would think if it was a different culture, this problem of there being too many men and not enough women um, could be somewhat remedied if women could take more than one husband. Right. Instead, it's the other way around. Well, our answer was that the only element that you're going to find that is in Native American cultures. Right. You're not going to find that in the quote-unquote Anglo history. Yeah. So, Yeah. So it's possible that um, and so we basically didn't have an answer for her. We're like, yeah, yeah, no, not no that's not a thing. <laughs> and and this is just a proof. This is def- it's that it's not a thing because yeah. if it could have been, if it could have helped any society, it would have been this one. And, right. and, they, and it was not something they were willing to do. And in fact, there was so much anxiety over women committing adultery that they created a prison to put women away in, whereas men were known to have two wives at a time. And mm-hmm. people were like, what else? You know, boys will be boys. Yeah. Um, so. You know, it is it is still this highly gendered thing, but it's but it's complex. And yes. um, some women, like that one woman who was like, "Yeah, I, you know, uh, conquered this. I conquered <laughs> this frontier and built a business. And what, you know?" Mm-hmm. Um, so I think another interesting thing that I also want to mention before mm-hmm. we go is that it's so this history is so interesting to me because we know so much about just ordinary people that there's no other records of them for mm-hmm. their entire lives, right? So only 25% of French Canadians were literate in the period that we covered today. And that's very low compared to um, British colonists. Yeah, British colonists was almost 100%. Um, and so... Uh, I don't know about almost 100%. Well, th- that could read. They couldn't it all was, necessarily yeah, okay, write, okay, but yeah, they could read. It was, it was much higher. In, um, okay. Only 25% of Can- French Canadians could read. Could even read. Yeah. Wow, okay. So the documentation is uh it's incredibly scarce and it's made even more so by the fact that French Canadians allies the Haudenosaunee uh-huh. their documentation was almost entirely oral. I right. mean they documented things but usually through through stories, stories. and yeah. yeah. So it's right. So it's just amazing that we have 
so many surviving stories of ordinary people from this time and place. And is this because these were basically official French records, right? Like kept in like forts and things like Some that. Some of them, right? yeah. And so, so they were being basically shipped back to France to be kind of archived. Right. Some okay. some of them. And most of them were merchant records. Okay. That just so happened to survive in like family papers and stuff. Um, so, maybe because it's cold. Yeah, maybe it's because <laughs> everything no, like bookworms Because it's things. cold. Um, and... Well, I think that one of the reasons that there's so many monographs and articles and so much research that has been done about this, um, a bunch of it we'll link in the show notes, Mm -hmm. I think it's because people are drawn to studying frontiers. And this, you know, the idea of this, like, vast and unconquered wilderness is very appealing to people. So historians have, for decades, been doing all they can to sort of parse out um, the little, you know, bits of... Of, of history that we can get out of the little bits of historical record um, that we have. And it's just, you know, it shows that it can be done. I mean... Right. The, the, like the cross-listing you were talking about yeah. with the, the people in, in Albany and, right. and kind of like putting times and dates together and, and, and making these connections and right. these networks. And, and you can't say anything for sure, but you can suggest things like this is probably what was going right. on, that sort right. of thing. These and things it, were happening at exactly the same time right. in this region. Right. Yeah. And there are areas that where history is, you know, especially like African history suffers from this a lot, that there's just less history out there. because And the, the idea is that, oh, well, a lot of this stuff is not documented but you know what? There are European forts in West Africa, for example, since like the 15th century. And, yeah. you know, we do there. It, what my point is, is that it can be done. Right. Um, it is there. It just has to be kind yeah. of unwoven. Right. Right. Reading against the right. grain sometimes kind of thing. Right. And I think because people, this idea of frontiers is so interesting to people, they have put their labor, they have invested their labor in that when it came to French Canada. And it'd be interesting to see if that can be done in other places, I think. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of into that, like where there's no, there's a paucity of records and you no, build I this see, thing. I, I definitely cool. see that. I see that in your own research. You're, you're into very much making these kind of network connections. Yeah. So right. I can see why this would be right up your alley. I'm super into it. So anyway, <laughs> um, we, one thing we want to mention, um, one of our favorite people in the world, Anne Little, her book, um, I didn't get into it because her book is kind of this long um, and rich uh, biography mm-hmm. called The Many Captivities of Esther Wheelwright. Um, she talks about these Ursuline uh, monasteries that I mentioned briefly with Marie de l'Incarnation, who had said that she saw the devil in this earthquake and all of those things. So yeah. um, she writes a lot about them, and it's super interesting. And that's one part I wasn't able to get into that would be really cool. They have... There was this sort of um, radical uh, women religious uh, movement that was going on in Montreal and Quebec during this time that a lot of people have written on. Yeah. Um, and it would be, I don't know, maybe a good episode on its own because they, some of them were cloistered, um, some were not, some were dealing directly with uh, Native Americans, mm-hmm. um, trying to convert them, stuff like that. And these women had, you know, immense amounts of religious power, um, more what's than the, they would have in France. What's the name of the book again? Just, just um, as a shout out. Sure. Shout out. Anne Little. So The Many uh, Captivities of Esther Wheelwright. And some of you might know her as History Anne. Yeah. Her blog, History yes. Anne. And um, she's, very, she's very active on Twitter, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, her, and I've heard really great things about her book. And I was going to get into all of that stuff here, but it would just be too long. So oh, there you go. Another podcast. Yep. Um, okay. So that is all we have for you today. Thanks for sticking around. Yep. And 
So we've recently started um, a Patreon account. Um, if you could head on over to uh, Patreon. Help us out with whatever you need. Right. We have whatever all different tiers. Um, we're using it. I think once we get to 300 a month, what are we going to do? We're going to invest in a new sound system so that we can bring the peanut gallery back and uh, the other uh, two people who aren't recording can Right. Because right now we're comments. literally standing up in a guest bedroom and we're both huddled around a standing microphone. Correct. And we would like... <laughs> nice bedroom! Yeah, it's not that nice of a bedroom. It's really cold. And I would really like to be able to sit. That would be the best. I'll just buy some chairs. I want to sit down. <laughs> um, so it would be awesome if you could do that. Also, um, we're getting some more action in our... Uh, facebook group called dig history pod squad we just share history memes and i don't know complain about things and i ask i ask funny questions and we just anybody's welcome to come and share and get along we're just kind of all hanging out hanging out yeah and we do want to say one thing so reviews on uh apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast help us get found so please if you're a regular listener or if you're a new listener and this is right up your alley please leave us a review it really helps us out twitter instagram pinterest see ya bye thank you stick around for the uh outtakes oh yeah listen to us up (laughs) (laughs) bye to a conglomerate See, now that I have my heels, I'm I'm automatically closer. I'm looking, I'm as tall as you are. Look at this. It's a miracle. It's a holiday miracle. (laughs) You probably say it some. Jerome de Pontchartrain is how they would have said it, but you can say Pontchartrain. That's fine. Pontchartrain. Pontchartrain. Because that's how they say it down in Louisiana. Pontchartrain. All right. Anyway, where'd it go? In front of the Parlement in Paris. In Paris. In Paris. In Paris. Paris. As well as marine pellets. 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 Gross. (laughs) Um. How now, brown cow? Freaks and geeks. Read through the thing. Boobs and goobs. Yeah. Boobs and goobs. According to the marriage registers of St. Anne's in Michilimackinac. In Michilimackinac. Okay, so. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. See, I only know him as Louis Cators, but I can't say that. Okay. Yeah, don't be the worst. I'm not going to be the worst. I just, when I see Roman numerals, I just say them in French. It's not like, it's just, that's how I learned them. Okay. I don't know Latin. Well, there you go. Louis Cators. Louis Cators and his advisor. Is that one of those fancy handbags? <laughs> Being weird. Oh, I um. I apologize. I, I opened this. I didn't realize the seal was broken. I mean, no, oh, it's fine. Okay. <laughs> that was your Christmas I gift, know. bitch. And like the second it popped, I was like, oh shit.